episode 16 of the Truth Quest podcast, where we will be discussing the Supreme Court. Do me a favor and share the show with others. If you are having a discussion about socialized medicine, the truth in general, Obamacare, prayer, or the Supreme Court, please send your discussion partner the link to this specific episode. Also, please consider supporting the show financially. All donations will be used to expand the reach of the show. See the show notes page at truthquest.podbean.com for the link. And of course, join the conversation at facebook.com forward slash truthquestpodcast. The easiest way to stay up to date is to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play Music, Stitcher, or Spotify. I first became aware of the obsession with SCOTUS, the Supreme Court of the United States, when I was sitting in the doctor's office in June of 2012. CNN was, of course, on in the waiting room. Everyone was waiting with bated breath for the announcement of the Obamacare opinion to be announced. When I went to see the doctor, she asked me what the opinion was. I told her the law was upheld. Her one-word reply told me everything I needed to know about the future of health care in America post the Supreme Court decision. Shit, she said. If you want to hear more about Obamacare, check out episode 14. More recently, we just lived through the attempted character assassination by Democrats of Supreme Court nominee Brent Kavanaugh. While that situation is still fresh in everyone's mind, I thought it was a good time to record an episode about the Supreme Court. I want to start this episode with a fictional story to help demonstrate the crooked and dishonest behavior of the Supreme Court, not just today, but throughout our nation's history. Imagine you are watching an NFL game one Sunday afternoon. During one of the plays, the referee throws a flag and indicates that one of the offensive linemen was guilty of a chop block. The next thing you know, all seven officials are huddled up, The discussion takes three or four minutes. Meanwhile, the instant replay is run over and over again. All the fans clearly see the penalty committed. The crowd gets restless over the delay and starts to boo. Some of the players start circling around the officials' conference, trying to hear what they are saying. Finally, after what appears to be a show of hands vote, the officials break the huddle. The head referee announces, There is no chop block penalty on the play. It was determined that quarterbacks have a right to protection and therefore chop blocks are no longer considered a penalty. Some in the crowd are stunned, but many are understandably relieved because their team will not be penalized 15 yards for the obvious penalty. As the game continues, the play-by-play announcers have the following exchange. One says, Since when do referees make up rights that are not in the rule book? I don't know, says the color analyst. I thought they were supposed to issue opinions on what they see on the field based on the published rules. No kidding, there's an NFL rules committee for a reason. They determine what is a penalty and what is not. Take it a step further. The NFL has corporate bylaws that the teams agree to when they join the league, part of which states that rules are determined in committee. It doesn't say anything about their officials changing or ignoring the rules. This is referee activism, plain and simple, he concluded. Now I want to change a few words here and there in the story to relate it back to the topic at hand, SCOTUS. Several months after evaluating legal briefs, listening to arguments and testimony from both sides, the Supreme Court justices break off to write their opinions. The court announces their opinions. Abortion is now legal because women have a right to privacy. Or same-sex marriage is now legal because of equal protection. Talking heads start their debate. Since when do justices have the right to make up rights that are not grounded in legislation? Or in the case of same-sex marriage, How can the court declare something is legal where the federal government has no constitutional jurisdiction? The other talking heads jump in. 
I agree, but what's worse is the Supreme Court issues opinions on what they see in an individual case presented to them based on the laws on the books. Exactly! They do not issue rulings that apply to the entire country, they issue opinions on that one case, he exclaimed. Seriously, just because they opine that abortion or same-sex marriage is okay with them doesn't make it the law of the land. No kidding, that's why we have Congress. They write the laws, not a bunch of unelected lifetime tenured judges. They have no accountability to the people. What's worse is the Constitution that the states ratified as part of their agreement to join the Union left most issues to the states, with the exception of a few and defined enumerated powers in the Article 1, Section 8. This is judicial activism, plain and simple, he concluded. Getting back to my original question about why the Supreme Court gets so much attention, you have to understand the left wing in America. See, their agenda is not popular with the majority of us, which is why they are constantly dividing us into numerous aggrieved groups and pitting us against each other, all the while pointing at whatever Republican happens to be in the vicinity, saying, he is the enemy, he's going to take away your fill-in-the-blank federal program, he is a racist, sexist, homophobe, xenophobe, and any other phobe you can think of. The left knows no matter what happens legislatively, no matter what public opinion is about social issues, they can rely on activist liberal judges to ignore the Constitution and legislate from the bench. Ben Shapiro said, The left has turned the court into, quote, a tool for the promulgation of public policy and not merely an impartial arbiter of constitutional meaning, end quote. Justices cannot embed or create extra-constitutional rights. Judicial activists imposed by fiat what should be imposed through legislation. Getting back to my sports analogy, employing the left's tactics, referees and officials could interpret rules of the game to account for various perceived aggrieved groups on the field. Maybe they feel sorry for one of the teams because the other team is bigger or stronger or throws faster or harder. So they stop calling off sides for the aggrieved team. When the inferior team hits the goalposts, it's counted as a goal. Maybe they shrink the strike zone for the dominant pitcher. They shorten the first down marker, stop calling three-second violations. You get the point. They circumvent the rule book just like activist judges circumvent the Constitution. I want to bring up one more point before moving further. In Federalist 78, Alexander Hamilton argued that judiciary would operate as the weakest branch of the federal government, which sure as hell does not jive with current times we now live in. Hamilton wrote, Whoever attentively considers the different departments of power must perceive that in a government in which they are separated from each other, the judiciary, from the nature of its functions, will always be the least dangerous of the political rights of the Constitution, because it will be least in capacity to annoy or injure them. The executive not only dispenses the honors but holds the sword of the community. The legislature not only commands the purse but prescribes the rules by which the duties and rights of every citizen are to be regulated. The judiciary, on the contrary, has no influence over either the sword or the purse. No direction, either in the strength or in the wealth of society, and can take no action resolution whatsoever. It may truly be said to have neither force nor will, but merely judgment, and must ultimately depend upon the aid of the executive arm even for the efficiency of its judgments. 
This simple view of the matter suggests several important consequences. It proves incontestable that the judiciary is beyond comparison the weakest of the three departments of power, end quote. So not only is the judiciary the weakest branch of government, but did you know that the Supreme Court is not supreme when it comes to interpreting the Constitution? As I mentioned in episode 14, The Truth About Obamacare, believe it or not, the Supreme Court's opinion on the constitutionality of the law is not supreme. James Madison, the father of the Constitution, argued that states have a responsibility to respond to unwarrantable or merely unpopular federal acts, which included a refusal to cooperate with officials of the Union. It's important for you to understand that individual states chose to join the Federal Union. Remember back in the 18th century, each state was considered a country. Even after the Constitution was ratified, citizens considered themselves residents of Virginia or North Carolina or Massachusetts, not residents of the United States. See, the states created the federal government via the Constitution. By ratifying the Constitution, the states agreed to a contract, or back then the term was a compact. They retained the power to nullify any efforts by the federal government that they considered unconstitutional. They would never have joined the Union of States had the Constitution granted a court to be the sole arbiter of what is constitutional. They were not granting carte blanche power to rewrite the Constitution. As Christian Hall says, the ultimate authority governing the meaning of the terms of the Constitution by the dictate of contract law falls upon the parties who created the Constitution, the states. James Madison said, the powers of the federal government result from the compact to which the states are parties. In other words, the federal powers are derived from the Constitution, and the Constitution is a compact to which the states are parties to. The Tenth Amendment Center explains it this way, If the decision of the judiciary be raised above the authority of the states, dangerous powers not delegated may not only be usurped and executed by the other departments, including the judiciary department, also, it is the ultimate right of the state to judge whether the Constitution has been dangerously violated. So think about it. Why would the founders have created a federal government and then grant a federal agency, the Supreme Court, the sole power to interpret the Constitution? Answer, they didn't. It would be the proverbial fox guarding the henhouse. Consider it this way. How could the founders have left public policy up to the least democratic branch of the government? Answer, they didn't. Chris Ann Hall said, The Supreme Court should not be seen as the ultimate arbiter of the meaning of the Constitution, as that premise would place the Supreme Court legally above the very document that created it. She continued, The Constitution enumerates the specific powers to the judiciary in Article 3 of the Constitution. The judiciary has no power beyond that specific enumeration in the Constitution does not vest the ultimate meaning of the Constitution in the power of the judiciary. In other words, the Supreme Court is not superior to the very document that created it. The created is never more powerful than the creator. Mises.org had this to say, Absolutely nowhere does Article Three of the Constitution give the court the power to decide on what can be legal or not in every state, town, village, or business in the United States. Moreover, as Jeff Dice has noted, the court's powers we so blithely accept are mostly made up, such as the concept of judicial review. That's a fabrication by the court. has no basis in Article 3. What about the Supreme Court is supreme only over lower federal courts? It is not supreme over other branches of government. 
and Congress plainly has constitutional authority to define and restrict the jurisdiction of federal courts. The bottom line is the states are obligated to oppose or nullify unconstitutional laws. Michael Meharry, the communications director at the Tenth Amendment Center, said, Every person who swears an oath to defend and protect the Constitution takes on an obligation to act when anybody threatens it. That includes people in other branches of the federal government. In the Did You Know category, Mises.org said, If you wish to, Congress could overhaul the court this afternoon. Nothing more than simple legislation would be necessary to radically change or completely abolish the lower federal courts. Congress could decide what topics fall under the court's jurisdiction and thereby limit the Supreme Court's jurisdiction as well. Congress could also decide that the Supreme Court is made up of one justice or a hundred justices. So how does the Supreme Court go about unconstitutionally dictating public policy? Some call it death by a million bad precedents. The way the Supreme Court perverts the Constitution or the rules of the game is quite remarkable. To carry the analogy forward from the previous dialogue, it would be like officials in one game citing the chop block opinion in another game, and then taking it a step further determining, since quarterbacks have a right to protection, we determine that quarterbacks no longer can be tackled. From now on, quarterbacks are required to wear flag football flags on their belt. The removal of one flag will be considered a tackle. How many of you remember the song by The Fix, One Thing Leads to Another? That's what we're dealing with here. One bad precedent leads to another. Bad precedence is bad, just like illegal immigration is illegal. I would argue that judges who claim they will rule based on precedence or settle law are unqualified for the highest court, or any court for that matter. And for those of you who are really astute, yes, that would include Judge Kavanaugh, who made that claim during his nomination hearings, specifically calling Roe v. Wade the law of the land, or settled law. It is not law of the land. It is an opinion issued by a court on a single case. Justices are supposed to rule on the constitutionality of a law, not what other judges said 5, 10, 50, 100 years ago. It's really remarkable how often the Constitution is ignored or perverted in order to determine the constitutionality of a law. When one bad precedent is cited in another case, which is then cited in another case, what they are doing is essentially rewriting the country's rulebook. Activists and or progressive justices are able to chip away at the Constitution over the course of decades under the guise of interpreting it. I hate to break it to some of you, but the Constitution is not a living, breathing document. It is a contract. Contracts mean what they say on paper, not what some jackass in a black robe says it is because she's pissed off because gay people can't quote-unquote get married. It doesn't permit justices to substitute their preference or their values or their beliefs for those enumerated in the Constitution. The Supreme Court is supposed to call balls and strikes, not interpret. As Peter Schiff is fond of saying, the Constitution does not need to be interpreted. It's not written in Chinese. Now I want to take a little more detailed look at the this, this idea of law of the land, settled law, and opinions versus rulings. As I mentioned in the dialogue in the episode's opening, the output produced by the Supreme Court is called an opinion. And you will note that the Constitution does not provide the court with any enforcement mechanisms. They can offer opinions all day long, but they have no power to enforce these opinions. Hell, I obviously have lots of opinions, but I don't have any more ability to make people follow me, my opinion than the Supreme Court does. 
America must break free from the dangerous ideology that, that the Supreme Court issues rulings, and the, these rulings become law of the land or settled law. Judges do not issue rulings. Kings issue rulings. Judges render opinions, and those judicial opinions have a very limited scope of authority. A judicial opinion is only binding on the parties in the case, where a king's ruling controls the whole land. This is not an oligarchy of nine kings and queens who rule over the land with unquestionable authority. For example, Roe v. Wade is an opinion issued by the Supreme Court. It is only binding on Roe, Wade, and the other parties in the case. It's not law. Laws are written by legislatures and signed by executives, not by opinions issued by the Supreme Court justices. Mises.org has this to say about it. If it makes sense for a small handful of people to decide law for the entire country, why even bother with the House of Representatives or even the Senate? The idea that nine lawyers in black robes hold this much power is insane and goes against the essence of the Constitution. After all, these are human beings sitting on the court. They are not gods. They are not robots. They have human imperfections and frailties. They have prejudices and policy preferences that come out in their opinions. They are susceptible to peer pressure and bullying like everybody. Consider FDR's threat to pack the court with liberal justices. When FDR was with regularity getting his New Deal legislation pushed through Congress, the Supreme Court was just as regularly striking them down since they were upholding their oath of office and using the Constitution as their guide. Somehow these justices were unable to find FDR's alphabet soup agencies in the text of the Constitution. They couldn't find a National Recovery Administration, no Agricultural Adjustment Act, no Works Progress Administration, no National Youth Administration, no Rural Electrification Act, and they couldn't find minimum wage either. So FDR did what he had to do to get his unconstitutional agenda through the court by threatening to pack it. All of a sudden, one justice, Owen Roberts, found religion, and after opposing New Deal legislation previously, miraculously became the swing vote to uphold them as meeting constitutional muster. Remember what I said in episode 14 when I argued one of the problems with the Obamacare law was how it was upheld by SCOTUS? Judge Roberts' rewriting of the law was likely due to his desire not to have his court's name associated with the squashing of this most obvious of unconstitutional laws. He made an emotional decision and wrote a decision to meet that emotion regardless of what the Constitution said. The final point I want to make in this episode comes in the form of a question followed by a laundry list, so to speak. The question is, why should we grant so much power to an institution that has a history of issuing harmful, despicable, racist, overreaching, and unconstitutional opinions in the past? Michael Meharry offered this insight. There are so many bad SCOTUS decisions, it's really hard to narrow it down. Virtually every opinion rests on a previous bad opinion. The entire body of constitutional law has usurped authority from the states. Establish the federal government as virtually all-powerful and nullify the Tenth Amendment. Even decisions where we might consider the outcomes as good are often based on faulty legal reasoning. I feel pretty comfortable saying that vast swath of so-called constitutional law is unconstitutional when set against the Constitution as understood in ratification. So personally, I don't understand the reverence for all things government, especially the federal government. The Supreme Court is like the proverbial low-life brother-in-law who has a history of cheating on your sister and verbally abusing her. He can't hold down a job, he makes racist comments, he abandons his family and refuses to pay child support. How can I make such a seemingly outlandish claim? 
consider the following laundry list of Supreme Court not-so-great hits. The only way they arrived at most of these decisions is by ignoring the very document that they were swore to uphold. After you hear me describe these cases, I want you to ask the question, why should an institution that issued that opinion be given power to dictate anything to 330 million people? Let's start with Wickard v. Filmburn from 1942 in Gonzalez v. Roch in 2005, the grain case and the marijuana case. Here is some brief constitutional context that the majority of the Supreme Court ignored when they issued their decisions on, in these cases. Article 1, Section 8 of the United States Constitution grants Congress the power to regulate commerce among the several states. The framers and ratifiers of the Constitution understood those words to mean that while Congress may regulate commercial activity that crossed state lines, Congress was not allowed to regulate the economic activity that occurred inside a state. It's as simple as that. In its majority decision in both Wickard v. Filburn and Gonzalez, the Supreme Court allowed Congress to regulate the wholly intrastate cultivation of wheat and marijuana. Those decisions cannot be squared with the original meaning of the Commerce Clause. For those of you unfamiliar with these cases, here's a brief summary. The best ex explanation I found on the Wicker case came from Thomas Sowell. He explained Roscoe Filburn was an Ohio farmer who grew some wheat to feed his family and some farm animals. But the U.S. Department of Agriculture fined him for growing more wheat than he was allowed to grow under the Agricultural Adjustment Act of 1938, which was passed under Congress's power to regulate interstate commerce. I'm sorry, but in America you can't be told how much crop to grow. This is not the USSR. Alright, back to Seoul. Filburn pointed out that his wheat wasn't sold, so it didn't enter any commerce, interstate or otherwise. Therefore, the federal government had no right to tell him how much wheat he grew on his own farm, and which never left his farm. But the Supreme Court said even though the wheat on Filburn's farm never entered the market, just the fact that it supplied a need of the man who grew it meant that it affected interstate commerce. This, the implication of this kind of reasoning reached far beyond farmers and wheat. Once it was established that the federal government could regulate not only interstate commerce itself, but anything with the potential effect on interstate commerce, the Tenth Amendment's limitations on power of the federal government virtually disappeared. One bad president leads to another. Over the years, interstate commerce became magic words to justify almost any expansion of the federal government's power in defiance of the Tenth Amendment. In the Gonzalez case, the Supreme Court's majority opinion claimed that under the Commerce Clause of the Constitution, the federal government may criminalize the production of use of homegrown cannabis even if state laws allow for medical purposes. That is a direct violation of the Tenth Amendment. As Justice Clarence Thomas remarked about the majority's opinion in the Gonzalez case, quote, if Congress can regulate this under the Commerce, Commerce Clause, then it can regulate virtually anything, and the federal government is no longer one of limited and enumerated powers, end quote. So at one time, the Supreme Court thought it had the power to dictate what and how much of a crop can be grown on someone's private property. Where is that in the Constitution? Well, what about Dred Scott versus Samford in 1857, which is nearly universally considered the worst Supreme Court opinion of all time? Only whites were considered citizens. Americans of African descent were not citizens and therefore did not have standing to sue in federal court. This decision essentially upheld slavery. So at one point in time, the Supreme Court thought it had the power to disenfranchise an entire race based on their skin color. Where is that in the Constitution? 
What about McCullough versus Maryland in 1819? Despite its clear omission from the Constitution, the court found that the National Bank was constitutional and expanded the Necessary and Proper Clause. I won't bore you with the details, but the mental gymnastics John Marshall went through in order to arrive at his majority opinion was quite extraordinary. What about Roe v. Wade, 1973? An invented right of privacy from another case, Griswold v. Connecticut, became the right to abortion. Just like that. Poof. One bad president leads to another. What's the result? Almost 60 million babies killed in the ensuing 45 years, and in a demented worldview from the left-wing liberals in America, whereby abortion has almost become a religion. Still think this institution should be revered? What about Michigan v. Sitz, 1990? The Supreme Court upheld drunk driving checkpoints because, get this, the searches were equally intrusive to all drivers, so no individual had the right to complain. Talk about standing the Bill of Rights on its head. As long as the government equally violates our rights, the violation is permitted. Anyone with a rudimentary understanding of due process and illegal search and seizures knows that this is unconstitutional. The same legal mindset sanctions the TSA. What about Kelo v. New London in 2005? The Supreme Court opined that local politicians can confiscate private property if the property will kick off more tax revenue if sold to someone else. This was a clear violation of the Fifth Amendment's taking clause, which restricted the use of eminent domain. The court instead empowered governments to commandeer any land for almost any purpose so long as the government officials promise net benefits to society sometime in the future. This sweeping decision makes private property rights contingent on political candor, the shakiest of foundations. The court essentially ignored the Constitution in order to arrive at this ruling. What about Marbury v. Madison, 1803? This case created judicial review by fiat, out of thin air, not in the Constitution. John Marshall opined that American courts have the power to invalidate laws that have found to violate the Constitution. Unfortunately for Marshall, the Constitution does not grant that power to SCOTUS. To Marshall's credit, in this decision, he did not assert that the court stand as the sole and final judge of constitutionality, but the die had been cast, and one bad president leads to another. What about Chisholm v. Georgia, 1793? The court ruled that Article 3, Section 2 of the Constitution repealed the state's sovereign immunity and granted federal courts jurisdiction over suits between states and citizens of another state. Even though the 11th Amendment specifically overturned this, it set the bad president of federal power over state power. And as you know very well by now, one bad president leads to another. What about an Obamacare majority opinion? I mentioned John Roberts hoop jumping a few minutes ago. You can listen to episode 14 to hear more about that case. What about Gitlow versus New York, 1925? This was the first major case to establish the incorporation doctrine which applied the Bill of Rights to the states through the 14th Amendment. That simply means the case bastardized the Bill of Rights, which was written to keep the federal government in check. It had nothing to do with the states. This court overturned Baron v. Baltimore, 1833, which correctly opined that the Bill of Rights applied only to the federal government. In other words, the courts changed the meaning of the Bill of Rights. They expanded its reach beyond what it was written on parchment. What about Abelman v. Booth, 1859? It held that the state courts cannot issue rulings on federal law that contradict the decisions of federal courts. It, in effect, tried to eliminate the most important check against federal tyranny, the state's right to ignore what they perceived as unconstitutional federal laws. 
So you have a federal institution, SCOTUS, limiting the state's ability to defy federal government's unconstitutional action. See what I mean about the fox guarding the hen house? What about Plessy v. Ferguson, 1896? Many have identified Plessy, which allowed the racist imposition of separate but equal policies as one of the worst decisions in Supreme Court history. It endorsed racial segregation for public facilities. What about same-sex marriage? There is no reference to marriage in the Constitution, yet a majority of Supreme Court justices issued an opinion otherwise. What about Korematsuto v. United States, 1944, which found internment camps for Japanese Americans during World War II constitutional? So let me get this straight. The revered Supreme Court can forcibly imprison 100,000 citizens without violating their constitutional rights? See the slippery slope from this case to imprisonment of foreign combatants to drone strikes on citizens in the foreign countries? What about Fisher v. University of Texas, 2006, which upheld reverse discrimination? What about Plyler v. Doe, 1982, which struck down the state laws denying funding to pay to educate the children of illegal immigrants? The dissent said, quote, The Constitution does not provide a cure for every social ill, nor does it vest judges with a mandate to try to remedy every social problem, end quote. And that the majority was overstepping its bounds by seeking to, quote, to do Congress's job for it compensating for congressional inaction, end quote. What about McCollum v. Board of Education, 1948, which found that religious instruction in public schools a violation of the Establishment Clause and therefore unconstitutional? The illustrious Supreme Court thinks that teaching a religion equates to establishing a state religion? There's no hint of bias there. What about Emerson v. Board of Education, 1947, where thanks to former Klansman Hugo Black, Another bad legal president entered the legal lexicon, the wall of separation of church and state. In their dissent in Emerson, both Black and Justice Rutledge cited this phrase as legal precedents. However, it was quite a stretch considering this phrase is not in the Constitution. It only showed up in a letter from Thomas Jefferson to the Danbury Baptist in 1802. What about South Dakota versus Dole, 1987, where the majority decision found that the federal government can dictate a national drinking age and withhold 10% of federal highway funding from the states that did not comply. Another example of serious mental gymnastics used to justify a clearly unconstitutional law. The distinguished members of the Supreme Court found extortion by the federal government constitutional. Incredible. Wow, I'm tired after running through that list. Believe me, it's not comprehensive. There are hundreds of other cases that demonstrate the Supreme Court's purposeful ineptitude to do their job offer opinions that are on the constitutionality of federal laws based on the words and original meaning of the Constitution. So I pose the question again, why should an institution that issued opinions like those be given power to dictate anything to 330 million people? As we wrap up, I want you to understand that other than the shot I took at Hugo Black, I did not discuss the voluminous information about character deficiencies or warped personalities of those who have sat on the highest court in the land. Maybe I'll do a future episode on that. It will offer additional proof as to why this institution should not be trusted. I know this episode ran a little longer than normal, but hopefully I effectively made my point. Generally speaking, the power wielded by the federal government needs to revert back to that delineated in the Constitution. Specifically, the Supreme Court's role in society needs to be returned to its rightful place, one of a co-equal branch of government not one of superiority dictating their morals, ideals, and public policy preferences to 300 million people. They offer opinions, not rulings. 
Congress writes laws, not SCOTUS. And finally, at the very least, we should hold their opinions at arm's length and look upon them with great suspicion. And at worst, given their track record, we should evaluate them with some level of contempt and disdain. Don't forget to join the conversation at facebook.com forward slash truthquestpodcast.